Hey, Shmai. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Good, are you just working? Yes. Awesome. Welcome to our July podcast episode. Yay! Yes! <laughs> this month we have Jeff Matsushita, who is part of the Idaho Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence. Um, Jeff specializes in conversations with boys and men around violence prevention, and he engages athletes in bystander intervention and violence prevention. So a lot of his work revolves around working with community members and partnerships to address, identify, and reduce violence in our communities. Um, cool thing about Jeff is he's local to our area. He's local to North Idaho slash Western Montana. He's from Troy, Montana. So hear a little bit about his family and his life growing up in Troy and his involvement in athletics and how that kind of has worked its way into his job that he has now. So Amanda, did you want to share about when you first heard about and met Jeff? Yeah, I met him and sat in a uh, presentation he gave in reaching marginalized communities and he was just super engaging and I've been able to follow his work and been able to follow the achievements that he and his team have had and he just I love him he's so great he's amazing yeah (laughs) he's such a great speaker and he's passionate and it's just it oozes out of him and you just want to take some for yourself. Cause you're like, I love that passion. And it just like rejuvenates your soul, especially in this work that we do. Yeah. Just is captivating. And something mm-hmm. that I love about what he said was about just kind of address the history around domestic violence. And what I love that he mentioned was how conversations around domestic violence started around kitchen tables with survivors and That's the story we hope to continue with this podcast. So hopefully everyone enjoys our conversation with Jeff. Welcome, 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 welcome. (laughs) Welcome, everyone, (laughs) to Safe Passage and Friends. I'm Olivia. I'm Amanda. I'm Kyla. And we're super excited. Today we have Jeff from the Idaho Coalition Against Domestic and Sexual Violence. He's going to chat with us a little bit about some of the work that he does, specifically in engaging men and boys in the work to prevent violence. So we're really, really excited. Jeff, thanks so much for coming on today. I appreciate you all the invitation and the chance to, to be able to connect with some other human beings while our little people are at school. So this is definitely filling the, the loneliness gap. So thank you very much. Thank you. Do we want to just start off a little bit just by introducing, you can introduce yourself to us and maybe introduce a little bit of your work and what you do. My name's Jeff Matushita, uh, he, him, his. I grew up in Western Montana, Troy. So I have a definite affinity for North Idaho, Western Montana, and a certain bias that it's a lot prettier up there and the water <laughs> tastes better. And the people seem to drive a lot better. I don't know why it is, but uh I've been at the Idaho Coalition since 2004 with the, the idea of about doing violence prevention work. And at the time, we didn't really know what we were doing. You know, the, predominantly women had made this domestic and sexual violence movement professionalized. And, you know, a lot of it grassroots, a lot of it unpaid. And then when the Violence Against Women Act was passed in 1994, and then money started kind of coming into the way the system was set up. Uh, Sue Fellon was the, the original founder of the Idaho Coalition, and, and there was a small grant on prevention, and she had a trust in, in connecting with me, and my first mentor in the work was a, a man who was about my age, but he had a doctorate and a big degree, so I, whatever he said, I listened to, and that was the start of the work. Uh, of really what what is the role that men have to play? We know predominantly that it's mostly men's violence against women, girls, people who are gender nonconforming. Yet we also know that it's not all men, right? And we know most men will never be physically or sexually violent to anybody. However, we as men have been really late to the game. We've been 
quiet while the, we hear things in our presence, if we're witnessing them, certainly the violence has occurred in our image. So the, the opportunities that have been presented and what we've been able to do is just be in relationship with men and, and really talking about ways that we can show up differently. Um, again, women got this place to the professionalization. It started at kitchen tables. You know, it started in the middle of the night with a pot of coffee and sharing stories. And, and I didn't come to the work until it was professionalized. So a lot of the work we're doing now is inviting men back to the you know, quote unquote kitchen table to, to have conversations, to talk about similarities and the pressures and expectations that we were, we have based on the bodies we were born into the coaching we got from men and women, but predominantly men in our lives about how we should operate in these bodies. Um, a lot of the unwritten rules, you know, so the work that I've been able to do has been a blessing because it's helped me be human, reconnect my head to my heart and really see that humanity is not that far away from me. You know, my, my wife, uh, we've been married since 2003 is my best model and also my colleagues at the Idaho Coalition and the folks who are willing to invest in me to share their stories and time. Those are models of humanity that I'm aspiring to be a part of. And, and I know men are hungry for it too. I love that. What do you currently do? Um, what does your role at the coalition look like now, Jeff? Uh, currently, it's different than it was before. Um, so the work of engaging men is, is, is predicated on funding. And right now we have a, a federal grant that looks at engaging Latinx men in Canyon County, which is in Southern Idaho. It's the first time we have been intentional and with some funds to engage communities that are not mainstream. You know, mainstream is just code for predominantly white, hetero, cis, you know, identities that we, when we say quote unquote normal, unfortunately that's what a lot of folks unfortunately mean. But you know, one, what is normal? But that idea that communities, specifically historically marginalized communities, such as the Latinx community members, they've been doing this work without funding, and they have been thriving and surviving for decades, you know, in this state and beyond. So with these funds, we've been able to, to really engage community experts, um, talking about how we can engage Latinx men to be part of the solution. And through a cultural lens, though, and that, and, and, but again, I'm not a member of that community. So it ends up being a little odd at times. And, and I've had to set my ego aside, which is difficult in my body and in my upbringing. But what I've learned is that, that listening is a great superpower. It's hard to listen with your mouth open. I had somebody tell me that once. So finding out experts in the community and asking questions like, what do you need? How can we play a role? What is working and what would you would like to do? Like, and really going at the speed of the community, um, which doesn't necessarily line up with the speed of a, a federal grant at times. So there's expertise in our office with how to navigate that um, through our grant reports and, and be accountable. We are doing work, but we're deepening relationships. We found that the relationships really matter more so and we can move at the speed of trust. So things are moving a little slower. We, still, we talk story at our, our advisory board meetings. What's the story of your name? Who are your people? Uh, what are the unwritten rules of manhood that you came up either feeling, saying, modeling? If we can dive deeper into who we are and why we do what we do, we know that that trust is, is there. And if that trust is there, then we can move quicker. But then stepping back a little bit from just the federal grants, we know that like I led with, most men aren't violent, but a lot of men get defensive. And I think that's part of our upbringing. Tony Porter with the call to men, they coined the quote unquote man box, right? A very rigid definition of what it means to be a man. Um, and that in that socialization of us as men, asking for help and, and, and a very binary thinking of right or wrong, this or that is certainly inclusive of that, that man box so a lot of the time I get to spend with men is asking questions. What I've found is that a lot of us feel cheated, but we don't realize it because we never ask for help. We don't share how we're doing, right? Like my verbiage in the past has always been like, yo, hey, you good? Like if I saw you on the street, Amanda, it'd be like, hey, Amanda, it's good to see you. Hey, you good? Mm -hmm. And I'm not giving you any time to respond. Like I'm just doing that little social norms dance where I'm expecting you to say, yeah, yeah, I'm good. You? Mm -hmm good right and we keep it moving 
And certainly in the last 14 months with COVID and, and, and the uncertainty this had been about, I've tried to be more intentional in my statements. So I've gotten rid of that language, you good. I'm not trying to give you the answer I want. Instead, I'm asking and, and focusing on sincerity, saying, how are you doing, Amanda? Mm-hmm. And waiting for a response rather than my habit, which is just to you know, say the polite thing and keep it moving. Mm-hmm. Especially when we talk to newer advocates, like leaning into that silence and letting silence fill the space because when we ask people about certain things, they need that time to gather what they want to say if they want to say anything. And so not always filling the room with us talking has been a really cool shift in growing as a person in general, not even just professionally, but in my personal life, letting people fill that silence with whatever they want. I think it shows that what one that I appreciate that because yeah you're willing to listen right mm-hmm. and we're not just immediately moving on to the next thing you know for me one of my habits was asking a question and then formulating an answer before you responded in, in the hopes of that I would be seen as knowledgeable that I would be seen as somebody who could, is intelligent instead I'm trying to drop some of those masks that performance end of masculinity and and just be willing to say I don't know Mm-hmm. That's been a learning, you know, learning edge for me. Um, and then the willingness to ask for help, which after 17 years of, of doing this work about engaging men, I feel pretty confident telling other men how to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm still I'm still paying a therapist once a week to tell, help me do that same work. So mm-hmm. it's there is no end game in this. I don't believe like the journey is what really matters. I make a lot of connections with sports just because of, you know, I grew up in a locker room with my father being a football coach. Um, in, in rural Troy, Montana. But knowing that even with athletics, if we don't know something, we, we ask. And I think it's safer in that environment to ask if I don't know, you know a play, I get a play wrong. I ask questions and it's seen as a good thing. Mm-hmm. And in the coaching world, I've coached boys basketball. It's been a few years, but I coached about 15 total. And if I didn't know how to prepare for an upcoming 2-2-1 full court press, I would ask other coaches. I've got, I remember having napkins from going out to bars and like breaking things down sometimes with beer stains, but mm-hmm. you know, that was, I felt normalized to ask for help with a, a basketball question or, you know, a drill. I would research on YouTube or read books. We, as coaches, we go to clinics every year seeking help. But yet when it comes to some social emotional side of it, that wasn't part of my programming and, and super intentional with the word programming. Because we have been taught this, we have been coached this, but I know that we can nurture out and nurture up love. We can nurture connection. We can nurture that idea of vulnerability. You know, Brene Brown does a lot of talking around vulnerability and the statement she makes that resonates is there is no vulnerability without courage. So courage is an acceptable word in that man box. Like we as men get down with that courage word. Um, and we've shied away from vulnerability, but we start looking at it as, as them as an equation. We need one to get to the other. Um, I believe that shift is occurring with men that they're willing to reach out, such as we, we know more men are seeking therapy, um, you know, talk therapy. We know more men uh, are, are in really invested in being fathers and being husbands. And we're seeking that assistance through books, through podcasts, through YouTube videos, webinars, connections. We just need to do a little more public, I think, and give permission to other men to know what we're looking, reading, thinking about, um, and do it with one another, right? My wife, she loves me, and I know that, yet she is tired of me being seeking her out for her, my emotional support. So I think for us as men, we, we try to be intentional with making spaces like Zoom, um, or now the quarantine is starting to lift a little bit and vaccinations are up. Like people getting together um, to just hold accountable and, and hold love with one another as men so we don't have to keep taxing our female partners for that same kind of emotional support. I like what you said about how relationships and story is a huge part of that work that you're doing. I had a, a, a judge who was, I, I was mentoring is the word, but he shared time with me. He was a juvenile justice judge. And he said in his first 25 years on the bench, he was asking that question, why'd you do it? He led with that every time. In the last three years uh, before he retired, he learned and figured out the question should be, what happened to you? Mm-hmm. Right. So if we know that going in, and, and, and that's our mind frame of asking about you know, being curious, being open, but asking what happened 
which leads to maybe some explanation about the behavior that we saw, you know, especially the young folks that were coming in front of his bench. So as a basketball coach, as a father, as a coworker, like I try to lean into that question of what happened to you when people come at me with heat, you know, they're pissed off or they're upset or they don't like something. I'm working on flexing that muscle of empathy and asking that question, what happened today? Now, it's a pretty atrophied muscle because I haven't had to use it, but that's part of my own work and goes, goes back part of that journey because as our end game, to try to flex that muscle of empathy and listening. People's stories matter. I'm sorry, Amanda, I veered from your comment, but um, the stories matter, right? And we all have them. And I think that there's also a part of masculinity that has robbed us of seeing our similarities with one another. One of my favorite questions to ask in a group and this is with some, some comfort that we've experienced in time that we've been in relationship with one another in groups. But the prompt being, if you really knew me, you would know. Mm-hmm. Last week, I was with a group of young men who are uh, were currently incarcerated in Canyon County. And we led with that group. And one young man who had just joined the group led off. And it went from the surface to deep in about three seconds. Shared about his history. You know, his experiences of, of, of violence, not only from familial, but also from the community. And he gave permission. So the other young men, once they checked in, he set the bar. Mm. And the other young men went deep. For them, they went to their deeper spots rather than the surface. So that young man gave permission to the rest of the room to share. And, and I think we as men are permission seekers. Esther Stoller is the executive director of Future Without Violence. And she made that simple statement years ago, and it resonates. Like Men are permission seekers, period. So if we're looking to other men to model and figure this out, we need to, to be not only be open, but also be willing to share about, again, what we're looking at, reading, thinking about, and then the willingness to, to, to lean into that vulnerability through courageous steps. So when we're talking about violence prevention work, what are some of the reasons that you found that the people around you have found that it's important to engage men and engage boys when working toward preventing violence and preventing harmful behaviors. You know, my mentor, Tony Porter, made the statement, like, men's violence will end when men choose to. Mm-hmm. And, and another ugly truth of this is that, is that historically men have chosen harm. I mean, I think we've chosen to enact domestic terrorism because we can't. It's been permissive. It's been allowed. It's been encouraged. You know, that's modeled through our language. Again, like I said, not all men are going to choose physical or sexual violence, but our language and our attitudes certainly have supported that fertile soil for the rape culture that exists, for the domestic and physical violence that exists. We've allowed that through our language and our permissions. So at its root cause, it's twofold. One, we know that hurt people hurt people. So men who are choosing harm I would say most often are not healthy and or well happy themselves. So if we can engage men about ways to reconnect our heads to our hearts by investigating the ways that we've, the pressures and expectations that we have been given and and directions we've been given since before we were born and in the world we live in and start examining the ways that we have been coached, again, coached by men, coached by women, coached by our communities, And then looking for nurturing ways, because that nurturing is reconnecting our heads to our hearts. It's us being happy and healthy. So the outcomes are not only ending of domestic and sexual violence, but also the attitudes and beliefs that allow for those things to occur. And men are happy. My work partner asked me this question a couple of years ago. We were driving up to, to Moscow, and we're like 10 minutes into the drive from Boise. And he's like, hey, just thinking about this, what would it be like if men were happy? We chewed on that for five and a half hours. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, but I'm willing to find out. And so I don't have to look very far for models of happiness in this violence prevention work. If I listen better, I'm not doing a job of listening right now. I'll just name them. Yeah, but a bunch. We can model the way that women show up in our lives for us and with us as men and do that work with other men. I think that's a step in the direction towards happiness, towards being whole. Um, and looking towards the, the young folks in our lives, either our own children, kids in our community, the kids we coach, teach, whatnot, people who look to us, if we're giving them permissions by saying things such as, I don't know, uh, modeling and asking questions, 
and being more open about how we're doing emotionally, I believe that's going to that step in the direction for, for us as men to be, again, reconnecting our heads to our hearts. And, and the violence prevention will take care of itself if we are allowing those who are causing harm to be healed. I love this. Jeff, you're killing I could listen to you all day. I just want you to know this. I am entranced in this conversation. I just, I love it. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the, all of this. Yeah. Thanks y'all for the space because our, our, our soon to be 11 year old usually rolls their eyes at me. So I appreciate oh. a new audience. <laughs> and we're like, yes, I love it. That's what Olivia and I've noticed. Olivia and I work a lot in the middle school and high schools. And when we're, even when we interact with young men or young boys, like most of the time, they just want someone to listen to them and just mm-hmm. be heard. Yeah, I don't think we do that well. And there is this real, the reality of sexism. And I don't need me to get all theoretical, but I've just seen it happen. My wife, Julie, is the athlete in the family. She played at North Idaho College um, and then went on to, to play at Montana State Northern. And she has a knowledge for the game of basketball. And I've seen it when we're in groups of, of coaches and, and you know other, mostly men, when we're playing ball or afterwards, you sit around talking stories, having beers about the games. And she'd make a statement and it was accurate and nobody would say anything. So we tested this one time and she had made a statement. Nobody said anything. I waited a couple beats and then I said exactly what she said verbatim. And people looked at me like, man, that's such good insight, Jeff. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Right. So I think we as men have just come up. I'm not saying these are bad, awful men. They've just been coached to really maybe not take women's voices as serious. But when a man says the exact same damn thing, oh, it's credibility now. And I think our ears have been tuned to hear male voices more than they have been female voices. The nasty truth of it is that women have been leading not only this work, but also our our works around the country in making our community safe, well, and whole. And men have been given positions of power and authority. So how do we get more women, not only in leadership, but us as men to listen and make, and and share that power with folks who know best, especially in the domestic and sexual violence world, people who've experienced that harm firsthand, it's predominantly women. And we know men have experienced that harm too. But if we're able to listen and, and, and make room and share our power with those who know the violence, we will work together side by side. I think we are in some ways. Yeah, I love that. So for community members and like people just, you know, living their, their lives, community members who are wanting to be more invested in this type of work, all these things that we're talking about, do you have any like thoughts or ideas or tips or ways that they can either learn more or engage with their communities more? First and foremost, I, for me, I need to resist the urge to be teaching too quick. So if I read something, rather than just turn around and regurgitate it, I need to give it some thought. That's usually, I guess it goes back to the man box. Like we as men are really designed and nurtured or coached up, excuse me, for action. Um, And that willingness to sit and ruminate and think about it. You know, put pen to paper, read books, put pen to paper, be in conversation and put pen to paper, right? That does different processing ways that we do. So tips, comments, I've got resources like things that have been holding me up uh, these last 14 months. Seeing the value of community. And I didn't really know what that word meant. But for me now, community means other people who are like-minded. Uh, so Zoom has been a really great platform. Uh, we're running an experiment. and It's going on month 13 right now. A group of 13 men who I was connected with over the years here in Boise and around Idaho. Somebody shared an article with me about... The, the epidemic of male loneliness and how men are dying five years sooner than women in, in their relationships. And it's usually to do, you know, stress-related illnesses, heart disease, addiction, and suicide. But they connected that social isolation to the decline of men's mental health. But again, you match up the decline of mental health along with the way we were raised, which was never ask for help nor show weakness. We had a lot of men who weren't seeking out the professionals that exist. So the article talked about men in my father's generation, and it was my dad to a T. His, his circle of men who he had golfed with, who he'd coached with and taught with, have either moved away from Troy or they've died. 
And so now my dad's role as he's entered into retirement really is driving bus in the morning and, and at night in the school. And then he comes home and reads books and kind of pinkers around the yard, but he's by himself. Now my mother lives there, but it's not in that same role of friendship that maybe a male companion could provide. So we took an experiment on with a group of these 13 men. And before the pandemic, we were trying to decide what we we're going to meet every month, where we were going to meet. Um, and then March 13th hit for us, which meant we, we, we socially distanced, cut everything off. So one of the guys said, hey, let's just meet on Zoom. And we did. And 11 of us showed up. And there were a couple people that cried, myself being one. And a group of men who didn't know one another, they were connected through, through me. And we just came together and they were willing to share and talk. And what was going to be every month has turned into every Thursday night from 6.30 to 8. And we went on a camping trip last year. We're talking about another camping trip. But a group of men who didn't know one another, but were really like-minded in the idea they didn't want to be alone. And they didn't want to become their own fathers or men in their lives with that isolation. That's a long way to come back to tips, but there's an experiment we're running right now. Um, you know, and we would love to, to open up that experiment. If there's men in the community, you know, who, who have a willingness, who are, you know, quote unquote, ready, willing, and open to meet up either on Zoom or in person, mm -hmm. um, we'd love to be in connection with those folks and, and share, you know, again, talking points, maybe the, the way we ran the group. I think at first there was a lot of people staring at each other, but after comfort was built and that one person was willing to share, it gave permission to the other men in the room, you know, the Zoom room to, to kind of go deeper too. There have been some organizations around the country, uh, Men Stopping Violence being one and A Call to Men being the other that are hosting monthly Zoom calls. And it's just a way to see people from around the country um, who, are, who are lined up and want more for men. On varying levels of the engagement, we have like there's a ton of community organizers, people who are doing the work on a day in, day out basis. And there's some people who just said, you know, I'm lonely and I got this email, so I'm gonna check it out. You know, all across that continuum. And it's it's just a chance to join and listen to other people and their experiences and and know that one, we're not alone. And two, that there are people who've gone through some things that kind of line up with where I'm at and that not feeling so alone has been super healthy for me. I think those are just two off the head. There's books and resources. Um, in the coaching world, there's been a lot more work going into the way coaches show up now. Um, I, the examples I always lift up are Greg Popovich and Steve Kerr you know, for, in the NBA. But really the WNBA is the one that, that was talking about social justice issues and they have for damn near their 25 years of existence. So we have taken a lead from women again but these, these coaches, Pop and, and Steve Kerr, were some of the, well, Popovich was the first to hire Becky Hammonds, who's now like their assistant head coach. And Pop was able to look past Becky's gender and see the skills and knowledge that existed. And the, not only the communication skills, but that and the basketball knowledge. But there have been articles and interviews I've listened to and read that he credits her ability to speak and listen as huge breakthroughs with, with being able to be a coach. So coach is a label that had predominantly been, you know, mailed and you had to have a penis to coach, it seemed like. But now we know that if coaching is about communication. Coaching is about building relationships. And, and what was seen as a coach for me coming up was Bobby Knight in the 80s. Like I wanted to be Bobby Knight. And then knowing there's a sense of fear and authority that he coached with. And the models that exist now are, almost 180 degrees away from that. Young folks don't tolerate getting shamed. They're not going to tolerate getting MF'd up and down and cussed at. So leaning into the idea of what a coach slash teacher really is, somebody who listens, somebody who has a vision about a purpose that's bigger than wins and losses. Joe Ehrman has been a, a huge mentor for me in that world. I've only met him a couple of times, but his book, Inside Out Coaching, is something that I would suggest to all male identified coaches who are considering or are currently coaching. In Joe's book, he asks four questions and then spends the book investigating those. First question is, why do I coach? Then why do I coach the way I do? How do I define success? And then investigating who are my mentors? In, co in Joe's mentor question section of the book, he shared that one of his mentors is Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. 
obviously not in the athletic world, but he looked at the skills that Dorothy encompasses, which was her communication, her ability to take a group of people she meets along the way, sees their strengths rather than their deficits, and is able to form a team that reaches the end goal, which is the individual's personal goals, but also the collective, which is making sure the Wicked Witch of the West doesn't do their thing. But I think that that's, to me, is that surprised me reading the book. Like, I never thought of Dorothy of the Wizard of Oz other than I couldn't get that song somewhere over the rainbow out of my head. <laughs> so I think that there are, there are ways that not only sports culture, but male culture in general is definitely shifting. And sports being that platform, the NBA and also the NFL are, are asking and demanding more from not only their players, but their coaches, which is given permission to the rest of us to see that, yes, we can't consider ways of being. I love that Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz was a role model. Yeah. yeah, I didn't understand it until you went back, like went more into it. But I was like, oh, I get that more now. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, besides having some dope shoes, which I'm, you know, the sparkles are always appealing. But, and I've struggled with that as a coach. Like, mm-hmm. The way I came up, I was super rigid, right? I And this is the 90s speaking, but in my head to, to, to coach and play the game of basketball, you needed two, two posts, one athletic wing, a really, really solid point guard and a, a shooting guard that could either stretch the court and it wasn't too slow who could guard somebody. But as the game has evolved, right? Every kid now wants to be a pick and pop. And we got seven foot kids down here that, Hey, coach, I'm a pick and pop guy, meaning I'm going to set the pick on top of this key and I ain't going to that key, man. That's where you get hurt. I'm going to drift out here to the three point line and stroke. <laughs> mm-hmm. So for me in my coaching world, I've had to be more fluid, you know, with reimagining who we have in front of us. And then my job is to investigate research and, and find ways for them to see their skills and their, their strengths and match it up with a scheme for all of us to succeed. Again, wins and losses are always the goal in sports, but the purpose is so much deeper. Communication, knowing one's role, collective values, competition, and viewing somebody else as an opponent, which means that I can go my hardest at you, but after we're done, I see you as a human being. So I think there's a lot in, in the, the sports world that, that I lean on on a daily when talking about engaging men. That gives me hope. Yeah, we... I've been coaching for about seven years and we get different groups every year. And I think when you first start out, you want to be, you're like, I'm going to be this type of coach and that's how I'm going to coach people. But in reality, you get different people with their own lives that come together and you have to coach them differently. You have to come up with ways to motivate, to get them to their highest potential of what they can be. And you can't do that the same for each person. And it's been a really interesting learning curve as a, as a former athlete, because I'm, I came in and I took things that I liked and I didn't like from all the coaches that I had. And I was like, I'm going to make sure that I'm going to be this coach, but they're also teaching you lessons all the time. Your players are. So it's been a very big growing experience for me as well. I appreciate you sharing that, Amanda, at the idea that it is not a one-way street, right? Of power over, meaning that you are the one to, to, to share and dump knowledge. And it is a bilateral. It's, it's moving together. And they teach us sometimes more than, than, than I think I teach them. Oh, yeah. Also, that rigidity. And I, you know, like, oh, I, this is who I'm going to be, and, and, you know, period. Mm-hmm. And, and the willingness to be vulnerable and say, well, I, I don't know a lot. My wife coached at Centennial High School. She was an assistant for uh, a guy named Emery Roy, who was a longtime coach at Centennial High School in girls basketball. I think he's won 10 state championships, like one in golf and nine in basketball. He's well over 800 wins, I believe. Mm-hmm. And this was, I mean, this was, he, he didn't have his 700th win yet is when we went to a conference um, in Vegas. It was a Nike conference. And he was the first one at every one of those sessions. I dipped out the second day of the three day of the conference. I went to go have lunch with my cousin and I missed Pat Summit, which I, it was bothering me. Yeah, I see your head shaking your head, Amanda. I know my own <laughs> sexism was probably coming out a little bit. And I thought, well, I got her book, so I'm good. But I missed one session and it, again, it was Pat Summit. So I came back for the afternoon session and Emery 
just looked at me and he wasn't a man of many words and just said, what, you, you know, all this, I said, excuse me, well, you weren't at that last session. Coach Summit gave some good stuff, but you must know all this. So you're good. And yeah, he was, he was a little shame to flip me some, some crap about stepping out, but it, it also showed me that there is never an end to this. And Emory with his, at the time, almost 700 wins now over 800 was willing to show up and listen to other people. Like that's, that's the journey. Mm -hmm. Always. I feel like even professionally, I go back to that of like, you start out, then you feel like, you know, everything, but when you really get to a point maturity wise and professionalism, you realize you don't and it's okay. And learning is always happening. And it's like, you're never going to stop learning. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what makes you grow as a person too. Mm -hmm. I, my best friend is up North. Um, and he, he's evolved his hunting. Like he, he, you know, he started with a rifle hunting and then, you know, got into, to bow and arrow. Cause he got tired of, of bow hunting and wanted to be more, get more out into the woods. And now he's gone to mostly musket. But I think as he's involved, it's not necessarily about putting food on the table, which again, they're privileged and, and they have income. But for him, it was about the experience, right? It was getting up and cel celebrating where y'all live, getting mm -hmm. up into the woods, into the trees. And it wasn't about bringing home anything, which I think is one of those ends of masculine, of the man box to say, well, if you don't bring something home, you're a failure. Mm -hmm. and, and he really started leaning into the experience. You know, I think that, that as he's progressed in that end, I've also noticed that he's been more willing to lean into these conversations that we have as, as not only coaches about the way we coach, but also now as fathers. And so it started with some of the hunting, started with, then the, into sports, and now into fathers. And our kids are, are similar age, and we can have conversations about, damn, I'm, I'm struggling with this little one. Like, mm -hmm. It started off with the joke of like, I, I can't do third grade math. Like, this is wild <laughs> to me. <laughs> but even that statement of, of being vulnerable enough to say, I don't know how to do something. Yeah, it was started with a joke, but mm -hmm. we've been able to share back and forth on how we've struggled, you know, through again, the last 14 months of the pandemic, but gosh, almost 11 years of, of life of our, our kids and how we've evolved. So having somebody to be able to bounce that off of has been great, but I know that he's doing his work too, as he's evolved and seeing more about the process, more so than the end game. I love that. All started from hunting. <laughs> yeah. I only been hunting one time and it got up at 3 a.m. and I slept the whole time. It was too early for me. <laughs> My dad tried to get me to go hunting with him and I was, I was like, no. <laughs> too early, <laughs> too cold. <laughs> And I like Bambi too much, so it wasn't very good for me. <laughs> yeah, if you walk in with a name for what you're hunting, that's not good. So I, I no. set you back. <laughs> I think a lot of men in these times, I think we're willing, we're unable to. So one, one thing that I've been willing to do, and I'm asking other men to do as well, like I started with this, of like getting rid of that language, you good. But being the one to reach out. And kind of to your point, Amanda, like as we as we get older and we progress, we get more repetitions. We realize that we we don't know what we thought we did. But at 43, I just talked to my college roommate. He and I lived together for two years. We don't see each other. Well, it's it's been a long time since I've seen him. But I realize that we've talked uh, twice now over the last 18 months, and both have resulted in one death and one of our friends who was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. Those are the times when I'm reaching out to him. And he, you know, he, we both shared our frustrations. He, we each had seven minutes yesterday. So we, we got on the phone. I told him the news. And then he just kind of paused and he said, man, you know, can we just talk again? Like, it doesn't have to be an hour. Can we just talk again? Just let me know how you're doing and I'll let you know how I'm doing and then we can call it good. So sometimes I know for me, I think it's got to be a big performance. It's got to be a win if I'm going to get engaged and talk to men. But in reality, I think I felt good knowing that he wanted to talk to me again, just for five minutes. That's not a lot of my time. It's not a lot of his, but that he loved me enough that he wanted to know how I'm doing. And then we're knowing that we'll check in again. So he was the one that offered that up and that felt good. So I'm going to follow up with that. So I think for us as men, 
maybe being the one to reach out is an offering, but building somewhere, and, or excuse me, starting somewhere to build together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about or cover? Anything else you wish we would have asked you? Any loose ends or anything? I appreciate y'all letting me just go off about the sports culture stuff. That always seems to be one that people can digest. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a comment that, that Representative Steve Shepard from Riggins had made on the House floor this year. And, and you know, he, he admitted that he made a mistake, but his mistake, I think, was that he said it out loud, and it was, but he was thinking it. And he's not alone in his thinking about the fear of women leaving the home due to the opportunities for kids to have pre-K education. Mm-hmm. So I think that there is a definite fear that a lot of men have about change mm-hmm. and, and that idea that, that we would have to lose some of our power. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the, again, walking into room and know that people will listen to me in my body, the positions and expectations for me to quote unquote lead. And I have the say, like the sharing of power that starts within our homes and then leaks into our daily existence of jobs, you know, positions of authority through community alignment or organizations. I think for us as men, again, with men, not at the expense of women, but for us to start talking about what does it mean? What is power? And, and what does it mean for us to be in relationship with women? Mm-hmm. And what would feel good to let go of? That's a conversation I'd be here for with men. You know, mm-hmm. I would love to be able to say, I don't know a lot more frequently. I say it at the house because I feel safe here with our kids and our kids know that I don't do math or, or much of education, but in groups of men, if I was a, I felt more comfortable with myself to say, I don't mm-hmm. know. And, and, and I can let go of my fear that I'm going to be shamed or let go of the story that I'm creating in my head. Mm-hmm. Is there something, is there a way, would you all want to, to offer something up to men in the community that you already have relationships with either through safe passages, personal about, you know, energizing or starting a group. And, and again, I, I or we at the coalition can play a role in that if needed. We're in both our local high schools, like City and Coeur d'Alene. And I mean, I coach at Lake City. And I think it'd be awesome to have a male coach that is there and would like to be a part of the solution and start something up here that we could engage boys and men and be that person to start it. But it's like you talked about, it's scary. And that one person has to be the person that starts it. And I think if we get one person that'll come forward and be like, yeah, I'll be that coach. I'll start this. I think we'll see other coaches come around to it as well. I think engaging young men and athletes is a little tough. um, But I think there's somebody in the community that would want to do it. And we would love your support doing it because we don't have any programming specific to that right now. We talked about the two programs, Coaching Boys into Men and then Athletes as Leaders, which were both evidence-based and designed for female-identified athletes and male-identified athletes to have these conversations, but they're led by the coach. I think there is a beautiful connection, though, that can happen between the coaches and Safe Passages if they would be willing to, to build relationships with y'all, which you already have. But y'all could provide the right the DVSA, you know, stuff that may be, quote-unquote, scary to these male-identified coaches to talk about. You know, so that would relieve some of that anxiety maybe that exists, but... Mm-hmm. the rest of it is, is part of coaching like how we communicate with one another mm-hmm. what we're modeling mm-hmm. how we you know encourage each other to speak up and stand down with one another that's mm-hmm. built into the activities i think just revisiting it all the time and offering out support is something that we'll always do mm-hmm. yeah i'd love to support y'all in any ways as possible um, then NIC, I mean, doing the green dot work, I don't know if NIC is that credible hub in the community that people saw that the, mm-hmm. not only admin, but coaches were involved in something that local coaches could come to NIC to start building those conversations. Yeah, I would love that. That's a great idea, especially finding the right coach there. Mm-hmm. That would be great for it. But I know that there's a lot of buy-in, especially with green dot within North Idaho College. Mm-hmm. So, and Kyla's the advocate on campus mm-hmm. there. Yeah. We've been trying to like brainstorm, you know, with COVID and everything, it's kind of slowed down the normal programming we would do. So we're looking forward to an opportunity, hopefully this coming fall, be able to kind of reboot some of that programming that we were doing previously with Green Dot. 
um, with workshops around domestic and sexual violence and healthy relationships and consent. So looking forward to hopefully more programming like that. Well, I appreciate you being on campus, Kyla. Have you, were there any folks from the athletic department that are involved with Green Dot or the workshops that you're doing? We were able to have the wrestling team. We provided one Green Dot training for the entire wrestling team, which was really great. So we're hoping to be able to engage more of those athletic teams. Before that, we've had like softball, um, some of the other teams on campus join the Green Dot. So hopefully just getting more student buy-in from that too, since it's a community college, you know, they kind of cycle a little bit quicker than a university. So the programming, we just have to be on top of it a little bit extra. Yeah, it is. Yeah, you got a short window of time, that's for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a mobilizing men group at U of I. It started with grant funding, but I think it's been it's it's been institutionalized now. So I think as far as a resource goes, a mobilizing men group down there. They're they're doing experimentations and working with like fraternities and athletic teams. But that's one of those natural partnerships. Like in my head, a pie in the sky would be to host something at NIC and bring up the mobilizing men folks, mm-hmm. bring y'all in from the community mm-hmm. side and I guess normalize the conversation. Mm-hmm. We would love that. Yeah. Yeah. But we need reps. But definitely where to start, right? I've noticed that a lot of people don't even engage in these conversations. Mm-hmm. Like for us, it's like almost, it's normal because this is what we do for our living. And, but like when you bring it into a space that's new, like ha- starting conversations, people are like, oh, like why, like why would you even ask that? Or why would you talk about that? I remember talking to my boyfriend about, he, he was saying something, I was like, yeah, you know, if you've dated men or women and just opening up that space and he, he was offended. And I was like, what? why are you offended? Right. And he's like, well, like I'm not, I am not a gay man. And I'm like, okay. I was like, but I'm opening up that space that if that was something in your life that you wanted to share with me, you would feel comfortable sharing that with me. And it was like a light bulb for him. He, he took time to think about it. And he's like, I appreciate that. Like, I've never had anybody have that conversation with me. Oh. It was just interesting. I imagine how quick his muscle was too to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not gay. Like, oh no, love women. A woman, <laughs> yes, love them. Yeah. <laughs> and Tony Porter, again, I call it the med, has talked about that for years. Like homophobia, right? The fear of being perceived as gay is the glue that keeps the man box together. Mm-hmm. You know, that that rigid notion. And I I think this younger generation now, I think LGBTQ issues, rights, seeing seeing folks as humans is part of their vocabulary. So I don't believe it is a, is a like hatred of people who have identified identities of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or queer. I think it still is for hetero, predominantly cis men to be perceived as that that's the, that's the, like, oh, oh, oh no, 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 let me, let me, let me preface this of, hey, uh, no homo, but hey, I love you. You know, I, yeah. we need these precursors to get into the, into the real emotion of it. And I think that's mm-hmm. part of this, the, the robbing of us as men is our full humanity that we can't even acknowledge love. Mm-hmm. Again, my buddy, I knew he'd been drinking on the phone if we would talk years ago and I'd leak in a, hey, I love you. Man. Oh, hey, I love you too, Jim. I knew he was about three beers deep. Right. But that was, early, that was in our 20s and our 30s and now in our 40s, it comes up a lot more organically of, hey, I miss you. Mm-hmm. Hey, man, I, I, I really love you. And I love what you're doing with your kids. So as we go, get older, I guess that comfort comes. But. Mm-hmm. Well, Jeff, this is amazing. I appreciate your time so much. Um, three last questions. What's your favorite color? Sunset. Love that. Uh, what's your favorite food to eat? Uh, white rice, sticky rice, the gluten stuff that's mm-hmm. going to give me diabetes. Uh, pork sausage patty and a scrambled egg dry with lots of soy sauce. Yes. And last but not least, what's your favorite movie? We were just talking about this. I'm going to pull Hoosiers. Yes. We would watch that on the bus ride down to state basketball every year. Pumped. Pumped us up. (laughs) Don't get caught while the pace dry, man. That's that's a life lesson. This is amazing. Thank you so much, Jeff. I appreciate this. Like, this is nothing else. This is a flag that goes up that people can choose to listen and and sit with. Thank you for making time for me to come on and just thank you. Thank you so much. It's been amazing.
Amazing. Oh, yeah. Thank you all for making the space for me to check, come talk with you. I really appreciate it. We appreciate you. Thank you so yeah, much. Thank you so much. This was really yeah. good. Have a good day. I got to go catch a bus to Lewiston <laughs> for softball. Ooh. I know. I know. Like it's almost a three hour trip down and three hours back. So fun. Go get him, coach. <laughs> thank you. So good to see you, Jeff. Thank you so much. All right, thank you Thanks. so much. Have a good day. See Bye. you all. Thank you everyone for listening to our July episode with Jeff and thank you. Huge shout out to Jeff. Big thank you for Thanks, sharing, Jeff. <laughs> sharing your time and your knowledge and your expertise and for sharing with uh, our community and with everyone who's listened to this podcast. So that was great. Uh, we have some announcements for the month of July. The first one is First of all, we want to also give a huge shout out and thank you to North Idaho Pride Alliance. Um, June was Pride Month and they were very gracious to include us in some of the events that they put on for our community. Um, so if you were there, also thank you for attending. Um, I personally picked up an awesome soap from Mount Madness Soap that supports North Idaho Pride Alliance. So hopefully everyone was kind of able to get involved with our amazing community resource. Mm -hmm. And we'll link some show notes. We'll link Jeff's information in the show notes. That way everyone has a way to get in contact and be involved with the work that Jeff is doing uh, with the Idaho Coalition Against Sexual Domestic Violence. Some things going on at Safe Passage. If you are interested in getting involved or wanting to support us, we do are always looking for volunteers as well as we just launched our 208 club. You can find more information about that on our website, safepassageid.org is our website. We are launching our next support group for teens. So we have a teen support group for youth ages 14 to 18 who've been impacted by sexual assault or sexual abuse. Um, we have a support group starting in September for that. So if anyone is interested or knows someone who might be interested in joining the next group, that will be starting in September. So you can reach out to Safe Passage with our contact information in the show notes for more information about our support group. Awesome. I love that. Thank y'all. Thank you. Stay cool. Yeah, the heat wave. Heat wave. (laughs) Lots of water. Water. Stay hydrated. Yes.